my wife and I, we, we got to hang out with her family. Uh, this was a, a, back in March. Uh, we got to hang out with her family in Bass Lake. Uh, we, we spent a handful of days up there. Uh, they had rented out a house, this beautiful house, uh, just kind of tucked away a little bit, but a real close walk to the water. And they had recently remodeled. I mean, I, I can't imagine how much money they put into this remodel. It was beautiful. The weekend before that, there was a wedding that was held at this house. Like, they literally did the wedding there. Uh, a lot of photographers just dream about shooting photography in this house. And we were there, and again, we're just looking at the house. It's beautiful, taking everything in, uh, the, the remodel, all those things. And uh, I remember being in the bathroom, and at one point uh, on the wall, I just noticed kind of these faint writings of some sort, like uh, kind of purplish, but you couldn't really make it out. And it was odd, though, because the rest of this house is just immaculate. So it doesn't seem like there should be anything out of place uh, when you put this much detail into something. And it caught my attention once, didn't really think much of it, you know, in the bathroom again, and I'm looking at it, and I, I look a little bit closer, and there's these numbers, kind of, and it looks like they're written in purple pen. Um, and it, the number says, like, 42 and a half, and a little bit before that, the number was, like, 26, or, you know, and there's a few different numbers, and I realized very quickly that it was writings on the sheetrock underneath the paint that had bled through the paint. There's certain pens that if you use in construction, that will just continue to show through the paint. And... You could tell that it's like, it's too neat for a toddler. Like, I'm imagining like some little kid in there with a purple pen, but it's like, this is 42 and a half. There's not like a three-year-old that knows how to write 42 and a half, especially that high. Uh, but no matter what, I could imagine they were sitting there painting over this wall, and it just continued to bleed through. And you, okay, let's do one more coat. And you throw another coat on it, and you paint over it again, and you let it dry, and there it is again, 42 and a half. And it's just not going away. And I think this can illustrate a lot of our lives that there are so many layers to our lives and things behind us that as, as we show up in this room today, as we look and make eye contact, as we look at each other on Zoom, uh, we see us, we, we see each other, but the reality is that there's a lot more to each of us than we all see. There's layers. And probably one of the biggest things that happens in our life is we have experiences, good experiences, bad experiences, all different types of experiences. But no matter your experiences, probably one of the things that shapes us the most is our family of origin. The people that raised us, the people that we grew up with, the people that raised the people that raised us, the people that raised the people that raised us that raised us, or something like that, right? We can just keep going on and on and on. And just like this pen on the drywall, the things that my grandparents did, the things that their grandparents did, can continue to reveal through the new coat of paint in my life. These things trickle down and they pass through generation after generation after generation. But we do as Americans, we love to believe the myth that we are an individual person. I am myself. I make my own decisions. I'm a self-made person. Uh, I'm independent from other people. But again, I do believe that is a myth. But I do think Soren, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, said this. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. And this morning, what I want us to do is look at family patterns. Family patterns of the past that have shaped our present. The, the, the ways in which um, we're not even aware of how we've been influenced by our parents, their parents, the parents before them. And this can be challenging because for some of us, we may not have parents. We, we may not even know our parents or a parent, but there is still someone who has deeply informed us and raised us in ways that has carried through to our lives today. 
And we bring this up because if we, if we do this work, the, the family that lives, lives inside all of us, um, if we actually look back to the truth of the patterns of our family of origin, and we actually can do the work of looking at how that shows up in our life today, I believe what can happen is that God can actually work in our lives more. That the, the pain, the, the brokenness, the challenge, the, the shortcomings that we have, all those things, if we can do the work to look back of why these things are prevalent in my life, I can get ahead of some things, but I can also bring it to God and have God step in and rewrite narratives to say in our life. But it takes work to actually recognize these things. But this is highly important because the way we've been influenced means that we will also influence others. We will influence those that come next. Exodus 20, 4-6 says this. This is right in the line of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. about that for a Sunday morning? Uh, Let's start off with that. He says, I am a jealous God. Punishing the children. There's some intense stuff in here. And if we read this plainly, like this is, this is harsh. This is a pretty harsh reality. I do want to point out that I don't believe that this is generational curses to say. You can hear that term thrown around a lot, right? That, oh, there's a generational curse on my grandfather and it just kept getting passed down. And now that curse carries into my generation. And it's going to carry into the next. And somehow the curse has to be broken. I, I don't think we're doing that. God is not punishing us on behalf of our parents falling short or the choices that they made. God, God is not actively moving punishment down to the next generation. But I love what one New Testament theologian said. Each generation's failures make the next generation's environment in which they grow up even more difficult to be faithful to Yahweh, to God. Because of that, compounding interest of sin and destructive family habits keep accumulating over generations. So it's not that God is punishing, but there are consequences to our actions. And unfortunately, those consequences influence those who come next, influence those who come after us, and also means that those before us influence us. And this is the context, if we actually look back, and just real quick on on Egypt here, um, or with Israel coming out of Egypt, this is where the golden calf comes into play. If If we've heard of the golden calf, newly freed Israel has just come out of Egypt. They've come out of slavery. They've come out of idolatry. And as they move into this, this new way of being free, what we see is that Egypt is still in their bones. Though they've moved out of Egypt, Egypt is still in their bones. Even though they're free and they're a new people and they're being made new and a people with relationship with God, once Moses disappears, once God disappears, they go and create this idol worship to a golden calf. They still have to go and worship something. They still have to be bound to something else. Though they are out of Egypt, Egypt is still in their bones. And this cycle will continue to happen until it's dealt with. A few commands later, we read one probably a little bit more familiar, where uh, God gives the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And what's interesting here is the word honor, it means to give something weight, something that is heavy. And if you think about something that's weighty, that is heavy, oftentimes that thing will actually give influence. The way that we, we look and give honor to people, in so many ways, we're giving them weight to, to look and to reflect and to, to influence our life. And what I took from this is that giving weight to our history 
gives weight to our future. Giving weight to our history, doing the work of going back, will give way to our future. The past will shape our future. And in an counterintuitive way, that sermon series that if you say three times fast, you probably can't, uh, I want us to consider not just honoring our father and mother, mother, but actually honoring the sins of our father and mother. A little bit counterintuitive there, right? I don't think we wake up like, man, can I just look back at all the wrong my parents have done? And I just want to honor that today. I doubt anyone has ever woken up saying that, right? It's more like, why did you do this? Um, you might wake up with that thought more often, actually. That's, that's probably real. But here's just an example of how this plays out. And, and then we'll kind of move into this, what this means for us. But if we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if we look at their family, Abraham was blessed in his obedience to God. There was a lot of blessing. But what we also see is that in the ways that, that he made mistakes, those passed down from generation to generation, to Isaac and to Jacob. So to children, to grandchildren, and it even goes to the great-grandchildren. We look at third and fourth generations. Um, we see here, uh, for example, you see favoritism. Abraham favored Ishmael, Isaac favored Esau, Jacob favored Joseph, and later Benjamin. Brothers' experience cut off from one another. Family lines actually become separated. Isaac and Ishmael are cut off from one another. Jacob fled from his brother Esau uh, after robbing him. Uh, Jesus, or Joseph was cut off from his ten brothers, not necessarily by choice. We also see poor intimacy in marriage. We see Abraham had a child out of wedlock with Hagar. Isaac had a terrible relationship with Rebekah. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. It just continues to flow down and down and down. And then we get to a pattern of lying. And this may be one of the more prevalent things that kind of infiltrates all of this that's going on with them. Abraham lies a number of times to Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage was just littered with lying. Jacob pretty much lied to everyone. I mean, his name was actually Deceiver. That's what it meant. So I guess he had to live up to it. Um, and then here's a big one. Jacob's um, kids lie about the death of their brother Joseph. They lie about his death, going as far to fake a funeral for him, and then just keep this massive family secret. But if you see it, it's passed down from generation to generation to generation. So what this means for us this morning as we consider honoring the sins of our father and mother is that your family is in your bones. There's no way around it. Your family, for better or for worse, is in your bones. You have family history that just runs in your blood. Some of this is just passed down genetically. I mean, looks, health. I mean, there's so many things that we get from our parents genetically. But even outside of that, trends start to get passed down. The, the ways in which uh, we, we handle things like anger, the ways in which we handle marriage, the way in which we handle money, all, whatever it is, you take the circumstance and those things continue to get passed down one after another generation. And unfortunately, it's not possible just to erase the, the negative things of our family. We can't just go back and say, you know what, that didn't happen. Actually, what we find when we try to do that, oftentimes we become worse people when we try to ignore the hurt that has been caused by the generations before us. When we try to uh, just push aside the, the history of brokenness and we don't want to come to face the reality. And we just suppress and we suppress and we suppress and we suppress. The American way of suppression. If we can just push it low enough, we never have to actually deal with it. We don't have to worry about it. But we pay a very high price for this. The others, others around us that we're in relationship pay a very high price for this. But it can be hard. Very hard. 
One family therapist said, the problem with parents is that they had parents. <laughs> right? Like the problem with our parents is they had parents. The problem with, with our kids' parents is that we have parents. Right? You go on and on and on. The problem with our parents is that they had parents. Uh, Richard Velotis wrote a book called The Deeply Formed Life. He's a pastor in New York. Uh, some of our leadership is actually working through this book right now. And he tells a story of uh, a male in their congregation that had come to him, an adult, and was struggling with uh, sex addiction. And he, Rich just says, okay, well, hey, let's have a conversation. Why don't we go back to some of your earliest memories around this? And he just very quickly started talking about the time that he was sitting in his bedroom as a 13-year-old, playing video games, doing what a 13-year-old does, and in stumbles his dad. And his dad, you can smell the alcohol in his breath, and he comes in with a, a brown paper bag, and he starts to awkwardly just explain the birds and the bees in the best way that he knows how. And after he awkwardly stumbles through all this, he says, all right, son, you get it? And not knowing what to do, he just kind of nods his head. And then his dad tosses him a brown paper bag, and in the brown paper bag are a couple of dirty magazines. And he says, now that you know what to do, just hang on to these and they'll be useful for you. He said, but don't let your mom see it. Stick it between your mattresses and make sure she never finds out about it. So in this, I don't know, five-minute interaction, ten-minute interaction, it couldn't have been that long, there's a number of scripts that get written for this young 13-year-old. Scripts are the things that we have an experience of some sort, we create a, me a meaning or an emotion around it, and then we have a script that says, I now need to live this way, or a vow that says, I will always do this, or I will never do this. But the script is what he's now walking around with, that it's now he has a narrative around sex. He has a narrative around women. What this communicates is that sex is something that should be secret, that no one else should know about this, and it's awkward. This is a very awkward thing. He also thinks that his mom can't find out. So now it's this, this unnatural thing in relationship with others. And then from this, he thinks that women must look like what's in the magazine, and if not, then what's, what, what's the point? So and again, in that short time, he has now lived as a 13-year-old into an adult with sex addiction. His whole life has been formed by this five, ten minutes with his dad drunk explaining the birds and the bees. I don't know what it's like for you, but you have experiences. Your parents had parents. The way they parented you was oftentimes a reflection of how they were parented, whether they pushed against it or they went in line with it. And what oftentimes happens is that we respond one or two ways. One, one is to say, you know, my parents were the worst. They never got anything right. And this, in some ways, this might be true. Those who have experienced abuse physically, mentally, emotionally, um, but we just deem everything as they were horrible. And on the other side, we could look at them as just purely saints. They did everything right. They were always loving. And again, there could be a lot of truth to this. But in both, are we lying to ourselves? When we're saying they're the worst ever, well, is there a little bit of truth there that they were good or that there's some things I took from that? Or on the other side, when I'm saying that they are the, they are the best ever, there, there's absolutely some things in there that they probably were not the best at. But again, if we continue just to kind of move forward from things and think that if we just continue to move further and further ahead, these things will go away and we just continue to suppress and suppress and suppress. These things, like the ink on the wall, are still showing through us in relationships. The way you handle money. If you think about the way you handle money right now, you might have a viewpoint that says money is evil. 
And those who have it, the rich, they're all evil too. Or maybe money is everything. Money is the epitome of success. If you can get enough money that you will find everything you need in life. That came from somewhere. Whatever your view is there. Conflict. Maybe you need to avoid conflict at all costs. Or maybe conflict is best displayed when you can get angry and raise your voice and prove a point. Those came from somewhere. Cultures and ethnicities. Maybe you grew up with a narrative that said, don't marry outside of your race, culture, or ethnicity. Maybe certain cultures, races, or ethnicities are not as good as you. Those came from somewhere. Grief and loss, sadness is a sign of weakness. You cannot cry, you cannot show emotion, you cannot ask for help. Or maybe you just need to get over everything quickly and move on. Again, those came from somewhere. These are the things that are showing up in how we do relationships that came from where our family of origin has passed down to us. And the reality is that this isn't just interpersonal, this is also social. If we look over this last year as um, more and more of the systemic racism issues in our culture, in our country, as as we've seen these things revealed more and more and more, these, these are not just coming out of nowhere. People that are acting in hate and violence towards those and dehumanizing others based off of color, of culture, of race, whatever it is, that's coming from somewhere. And if you look at our history of America, we start off with genocide and uh, a slave trade. That doesn't just go away. There are systemic things that are not just interpersonal but are also social that we have been formed by. And if we're not willing to do the work, to be open, to look back, to learn what's come before us, it will continue to reveal itself like the ink does through the paint on the wall. Yeah, so let's go this way. So in those two options that we have, the two options that we have to look at our parents as the worst or maybe as the best, to not question how bad they were and to only keep it that way, to not question how good they are and not actually look back, to do the work of of family history and, and learning what's come before us. In all of this, there is good news. Yes, we have been shaped by those that come before us, but there is a massive opportunity to be shaped by really the one that can only truly shape us for goodness, for beauty, for love. See, becoming a Christian, actually joining a church, becoming a part of the family of God, one of the the language that's used most often is family. God is father, us as brothers and sisters. We we are adopted in. We have an inheritance. I mean, we can go on and on and on. We, We see this new family working out. And a big part of this uh, we actually see in Mark 3.31, I love this, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of people, and his mom, uh, his brothers, like everyone starts looking for him, and it's this crowded room, they can't get to him, so some people start communicating to Jesus, like, hey, your, your family's looking for you, your brothers and sisters are looking for you, your mom is looking for you, and he looks to all of them and say, says, um, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at those seated around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And this wasn't a diss to his family. He deeply loved his mom. We see this in a number of areas. He deeply loved his brothers. But what he's doing is he's redefining what family is. 
And he's redefining it in the lens of being a part of the family of God. Which this is probably what makes church so hard. Like we're not just showing up on a Sunday morning for an event. We are actually stepping into a space where we're committing to recreating family. This is why people get hurt. This, 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 I mean, church is messy. We could just show up. Absolutely. But is that the full invitation, what Jesus is asking us to, to actually step into ways of reworking the dynamic of how we were parented? Reworking the dynamic of the generation that passed everything down to us. And to actually look to a different way of being parented. A different way of being parent, parent, actually doing parenting. Of being siblings together. And this is where things get messy. But it actually invites us to become vulnerable. To do the work of learning these things. And then allow God and others. The good news is we don't have to do this alone. To actually rework the narrative and the scripts that we've been handed throughout our life. And this pushes against everything with a side of us. That says I want to remain an individual. I want, I want to be self-made. I want to do things on my own. And that is our culture. But this is why we do things like home to home. On Thursday nights, as we gather in smaller huddles and we're a part of this larger thing, like what we're trying to do is create space for family and what it looks like to rewire that. Um, we have our Emotionally Healthy Relationships course starting in a couple Mondays from now. And the whole point of that is to actually practice skills that help us look back to then look forward. When week three, we do what's called a genogram. And you actually map out your family tree. And you look back and you learn about where were the disconnections? Who is who? How did these people operate? And what starts to happen is you piece that together, you learn the patterns that are being passed down to you. Again, these are the things that you want to give weight to from your history because that will give way to your going forward. And as we do these things, what starts to happen is we can ask questions. As we notice these things, we can ask things like, what are your particular family trees, common sins, and struggles? Because it'd probably be in our best interest to learn these so we can get ahead of them. To make sure that I'm not going to continue repeating the cycle of brokenness in relationships throughout my relationships. But then you can also say, what are your family tree's particular gifts? You can actually look and say, man, I, I want to give weight to that. I also want to give weight to this. I want to continue that from generation to generation. But if we don't do the work of actually looking and going back, we can never actually grab either of those things and bring them to God and move forward. I'm going to wrap up with this. We ultimately see this in Joseph. Joseph was the one that was cut off by his brothers. His ten brothers, you know, essentially lie to their father saying he's dead. They do the funeral. What had happened is they actually ended up selling him off. And he goes off to become, uh, one of the, you know, the right hand essentially to Egypt. And he has this whole time of back and forth. He ends up in prison. He has all these dreams. And, you know, he becomes useful again. Anyways, they hit this drought. And all of the brothers have to come to Egypt for food. And they run into Joseph though they did not know it. What ends up happening is Joseph moves into forgiveness. Joseph actually, in the brokenness that his brothers have done to him, moved towards reconciliation. Right? We said earlier that this will continue to be a cycle until it gets stopped, until it's actually dealt with. And what happens here is we can actually see Jesus in Joseph. He goes into the other room and he weeps loudly. Others could actually hear him weeping, which tells me that he was not just no longer hurt by what his brothers did to him 10 years ago, whatever it was. He actually took that in. He processed the grief around the damage that was caused to him. But in all of his time, he also had this relationship that continued to work with God and actually do a work to where he can now write the, the thing that continued to pass down through the generations. And he says this, 
Um, and this is where we see this piece in verse 6 of Exodus 20. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, Jesus, he says, or God says that those punishments, they will continue to move down to the third and fourth generation. But to those that carry my commandments, to those that love me, I want to pour out blessing for thousands of generations. His love and his mercy are so much greater than the things that our uh, family of origin has passed down to us. And what ends up happening is Joseph has this conversation with them. And he says, what you, what you intended for harm, God used for good. So he actually is able to look at the damage that was caused, hold it to God. God rewrites the script, rewrites the narrative, and sees how it's going to be used for good. And then what he does, he not only forgives them, he says, I'm going to bless your children. And your children's children. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you a new home. I'm going to actually move forward in actually doing the work of reconciliation. So I want to end with this, and I'm just going to invite us into ministry time. So uh, Bethany, uh, Jesse, Daniel, however many of you want to come back up. Um, and we're going to have a chance to respond online. Uh, I, want to, I want to read this verse from 2 Corinthians 5. Um, and then what we're going to do, we're just going to hold space for about seven, eight minutes. Uh, and just have a couple different ways of how we can respond to what God may be communicating to us this morning. And then Daniel will come up and do communion after that time, and then we'll, we'll close out the morning from there. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5 says this from the message translation. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone. A new life emerges. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. See, in Christ, we believe that we have been made new again, that we get a new start. But that doesn't mean we don't have to look at where we come from. But it does mean all things are being made new again. So how do we hold this at attention? They're being made new, but I can do the work of going back so they can continue to be made new. And when that's made new, I can go back again. And we just continue to be made new and new and new. But it takes work of going back generations.